Hi everyone, my name is Miles Surratt and I serve as the Associate Director of Campus Activities and Events at Clemson University. I'm also happy to be your host for the NASA Leadership Podcast presented by the Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. My guest today is Dr. Mary Yulbean. Mary is the BNSF Railway Endowed Professor of Leadership in the Neely School of Business at Texas Christian University. She's also been a visiting scholar in Australia, Sweden, Portugal, and Spain. Mary's research focuses on complexity leadership, relational leadership, and followership. She is the founder of the Network of Leadership Scholars in the Academy of Management and served as a representative at large and division chair for the Organizational Behavior Division at the Academy. Mary is a regular speaker and has given keynote presentations and invited talks around the world. She's active in executive education nationally and internationally, teaching for the Brookings Institute, the Gallup Organization, and universities in the United States, Canada, Australia, and Europe. Welcome, Mary. Look, hi, Miles. How are you? Oh, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Uh, well, let's, uh, let's get started with our first segment here. Um, it is designed to help listeners understand you as a person, as a professional, and it's called Getting to Know Mary. So, well, it's oh, not wow. called that every time, <laughs> but this time it is. So, um, how did you get into the study of leadership? Well, it was by accident. I really didn't intend to study leadership. I think my interest was more in marketing. I, went to my, I did my undergrad in the 1980s, and they were telling me that the world was going global. So I was trying to be an international marketing manager. And then I went out and I said to people, this is the job I'm looking for. And they said, well, that sounds great, but we're not there yet. So I was a little ahead of the game. So I then was contacting a professor, and it happened that I asked George Green to write a reference letter for me. And he said, didn't you get my note to you? And I said, what was the note? He said, I want you to come into the doctoral program. And I said, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. Maybe later. He said, no, I want you to do it now. So he started putting on a recruiting effort and um, talked me into doing a PhD. And even then, I was still considering marketing. So I said, well, let me go check the marketing department. He said, oh, no, no, that, that will be professional suicide. You have to come work with me. <laughs> That's very mm. classic George. So I ended up saying I would, and he studied leader member exchange theory, and that's how it got started. Cool, cool. Well, that's very direct. It's good to have uh, good to have someone uh, pushing at least that uh, that directly in your life. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, mild spoilers coming for uh, Stranger Things here. So skip ahead, uh, everybody, a, l a little bit if needed. Uh, Mary, I understand you've. You like uh, like many of uh, any many of us here in the United States have recently watched Stranger Things. So, uh, did the second season meet your expectations? Well, I watched Stranger Things because the challenge for me is I have a 13 year old, and I'm always trying to find something that we can watch together on Netflix. Um, I realized mm -hmm. we had a problem when one time we were trying to watch a movie together because that was the way we were trying to to do some bonding. And we couldn't agree on a movie, so he was sitting with his headphones on, and I was sitting with my headphones on watching different <laughs> movies on our computers. <laughs> so we thought, well, this really is not good. So the challenge became, what can we watch together on Netflix? And Stranger mm -hmm. Things was perfect. He told me about it. It's designed for his age group. And the first season was a lot of fun because it was pretty scary. So it kind of reminded mm -hmm. you of the old horror movies we used to go to as teenagers when you sit in the theater and scream a bit. And there was a lot of suspense and, and fortunately not too many jump scares. But So we enjoyed mm -hmm. it and then looked forward to the second season. And I'm, I think, less picky than he is because he didn't like it at all. So mm. he started getting really frustrated and upset during the middle of the season. And then he said, this season sucks. I don't even think I'm going to watch another one. 
So that kind of ruined it for me. But I think his issue was that it got off some of the horror stuff it had in the first season and probably got too much to romance kinds of things and relational things, which, of course, mm-hmm. I like, but my 13-year-old boy was not quite so into. Mm, interesting. Inter- yeah, it's, yeah, it's neat to have, neat to have that, uh, that take. I thought, uh, I thought the second season was a little more uneven than the first season. Um, yeah. Uh, but I, I was, I, I, it was a very high bar for me, and I thought that they, they, uh, by and large, cleared it. I thought there were some, some really, uh, some really good moments. Um, so. If left to me, I would have been fine. It was the, the serious movie critic in the family of the thirteen-year-old that, that's <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah, that'll happen. That'll happen sometimes. Okay, yeah. uh, so Mary, uh, what is a horn frog? That is a really good question. So um, I have only been here for three years, so I can't say that I fully understand the frog thing. And Uh I don't know if this is appropriate to say or not, but some of my colleagues, I've heard them refer to it as the horny frog. So that (laughs) does throw me a little bit off sometimes. But it seems a little strange to be threatened by a frog, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, there's that balance between whether a mascot is supposed to be intimidating or unique, you know, and I feel like the horn frog is really unique. Um, it's definitely unique. <laughs> it's maybe not. It, it's definitely one thing and definitely not the other. So, Well, uh, what they do is they put kind of some scales on the back of the frog. So I guess horn frogs have these scales that make them look almost dinosaur-like, but then they mm-hmm. make them nice and purple. So it kind of reminds you of Barney. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, there's a friendly element, but we'll we'll just say that it's threatening. The frog's going to come and get you. Yeah, yeah. Well, that makes sense. Um, yeah. Well, and and the frogs are everywhere, right? There's lots of frog statues and like orientation is called Frog Camp, right? That's um, right. It's like, yeah. Yeah. It's uh really. Yeah. We have a frog folio <laughs> and frog fest and oh yeah, all kinds of frog things. What's a frog folio? Um, so students, you know how students have e-portfolios now? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's called Frogfolio here. Oh, okay. Okay, gotcha. Frogfolio. Yeah, and then the other big chant that we do is Fear the Frog. <laughs> Fear the Frog. Okay. Fear the Frog. Right. Well, good, good. Okay, well, I'm going to ask you a question that I know for many people is, uh, you know, harder than, uh, for many of the folks who come on the podcast, it's harder than, like, picking a best friend, but... Uh, what is the best book about leadership? So I couldn't narrow it down to one. It's, that's impossible. <laughs> and I think the ones I'm going to pick are older. And the reason is this. I think they were more formative during the years when I was learning about leadership. So it was, it was um, how they impacted me at certain times and stages of my career and my, my thinking about leadership. I think today it's very hard for me to say that there's a good book because at this stage of my career, I've read so many things and I think I've thought so many different perspectives. It's hard to kind of um, to present something that I find really interesting. So the ones that I'll say were influential at, at the stages of my career when I needed them. And the first one is control your destiny or someone else will. And that was in the early 90s. It was about Jack Welsh, and everybody was talking about Jack Welsh. And I really liked it because it was sending a message about um, making sure that you're in charge of things that happen to you. 
And I think that that mm-hmm. was a really important message at the time. And I would share that with students because I talked to students a lot about avoiding what I call the victim mentality. I think a lot of people adopt that. And it's just, it's really about how the choices you make and, and the things that you do influence things. And the other thing that was in that book was they talked about how Welsh ta- um, described a simple engine and, of GE. And it was a minor part of the book, but it stuck with me because what I took away from it was the idea that you need to get through complex and complicated processes and narrow it down to the core, the simplest core of what really makes something work. And I think that that's what I've been trying to do in the work that I do, especially as we've gotten into complexity, is to try to take something that's really complicated and complex and boil it down to the core of what really drives things. So that's mm-hmm. the first one. The second one I think a lot of people probably have, and that was good to great. And what I loved about Good to Great was the writing was really wonderful, but they had the metaphors in there. And it was a book that you could read and apply to an organizational level, but it also applied to the individual, the same concepts. So you could read it on different levels, looking at yourself or looking at the organization. And I thought that was really good. Great. Awesome. Well, um, some of that will help us transition to our next segment, which is uh, six big leadership questions. So, Mary, we're, we're here to discuss your primary research interest, com- complexity leadership. And um, for folks who may not be familiar with that idea, can you, can you just provide a, a, a quick, I know that this will be very surface level, but a quick summary of, of complexity leadership? Sure. And the best way to do it is to make it as simple as you can. So to the point I just made, um, a lot of people can get bogged down in complexity and in the term, and it comes from the physical and biological sciences. And if you look at complexity theory or complexity science, they use a, a lot of really, uh, a lot of jargon and very difficult language to understand. So I think the easiest way to describe this is that the world is getting more complex. And what that means is that there's a lot of change happening around us that's unpredictable, um, it's nonlinear, it's, there's a time of ambiguity and uncertainty. And so in that world, what we see is that there's a greater need for us to adapt. So the bottom line is that if we think about us, ourselves as individuals and if we think about leaders, the key challenge today is understanding how to adapt. And the problem is we have never thought about that because our models of leadership were designed for uh, organizational structures that were based on stability. So they were more about mm-hmm. bureaucratic structures and stability and control and hierarchical organizing. So we've always put our leadership models in that context, and that was because of the needs of the industrial era when they were trying to take semi-skilled laborers and put them into factories. They didn't need their brains. They just needed their hands. So what we've been working on is trying to understand how do we adapt. And when I work with audiences, I'll ask them, raise your hand, how many of you have been trained to adapt? And not surprisingly, not many hands go up. So I think that's the key challenge, and what we've been discovering is what that adaptive process looks like and what we can do in leadership to try to enable it both in individuals and in organizations. Okay. Um, all right, so that's a, a great start for our discussion. And so uh, one thing that, I, that I'm really interested in in uh, the complexity leadership work that you've done is the idea of rich interconnectivity and especially the irreversible nature of that idea. So can you explain how rich interconnectivity defines complexity in many ways? Yeah, so 
again, as I said earlier, it's really hard to describe complexity. And when we used to go out and present this, we got a lot of pushback or people would just glaze over when we use the technical terms. So I spent a long time trying to boil it down to the simplest way to describe it. And I found the answer in Paul Sillier's book, when he talked about complexity and postmodernism, and he said that complexity is rich interconnectivity. So what that means is that things are interconnected, and that part's not hard for people to understand. So if I say to you, um, interconnectivity, you say, yeah, I get that idea. And if I say, is the world more interconnected now, you say, yeah, I understand that. So the key word in those two words is the rich part. And what does rich mean? And what rich means is that when things come together and interact, they fundamentally change each other. So if things are interacting together, um, you can kind of envision them as bumping up against each other. And instead of just um, connecting or staying the same, if you think of it as two, two little dots, so two little dots or circles come together, they start interacting. If it's not complexity, um, they just – they might – connect, they might not connect. But what happens in a complexity event, and particularly in an emergence event, is that when those two things come together, they fundamentally change each other. So those dots don't look the same anymore. So let me give you some examples. Um, one easy example to think about was the global financial crisis, that there were lots of different things happening, different events, different um, pressures in the environment, different things that were going on. And they all came together and they linked up. And in a, what looked like a, really, a relatively short period of time created this major financial crisis that started on Wall Street and then um, resonated throughout the world. So it, those events came together and, and collapsed together and created what we call a phase transition to a different state. And once you're in that different state, there's no going back. So once the GSC happened, it's not like you can say, well, let's just wipe it out and go back to where we were. And you also can't say that you can manage it or control it. So if you think about Henry Paulson and how he had to deal with that situation, he couldn't manage it in a traditional sense. So what they did was they started engaging with that complex dynamic, doing things like the stimulus and other things that they, they were engaging with. Um, so that's a, a, an example. A more recent one we can think about, well, two of them, the year that we had the election in the United States when Trump was running for office, that was a complexity emergence event. And if you looked at it, a lot of people were saying, what the heck is going on? How's this guy doing this? And even I wasn't really paying attention for a while until early in 2016 when it became clear that he was, going, he was emerging as one of the final candidates that I looked at it and I said, oh, my gosh, this is complexity leadership happening right in front of us. So it was a huge gift to me because every time I went out and spoke that year, first I didn't have a challenge telling people the world is in complexity because they would just nod their head. They knew that crazy things were happening mm -hmm. around them. And then if you talk with them about what happened in the election, the nice thing was that for many people, it wasn't confused with charisma. So often when we have leaders doing what mm -hmm. Trump did, people will see them as charismatic, you know, if you think about Martin Luther King or others. And so it gets caught up and lost in the charisma. But in this case, people knew it wasn't charisma, and they also knew that it wasn't really Trump who led it or who created it. They knew that the movement the sentiment and the energy for it was coming from outside of Trump. So what Trump did was he became a tag or an attractor for that movement. He knew the sentiment was out there, and he kept putting up these symbols or tags like his hat or his statements. 
And that became the attractor for different groups to come together. The interesting thing about that is when the Republicans and the establishment party tried to wipe that out, they actually fed and fueled it. So they came out and they said, Mitt Romney said, well, this, is, this guy's a crazy man and we can't follow him and he doesn't represent the Republican Party. And he thought that that would pull people away from Trump and stop the movement. But instead what it did was it made people who were listening to it, who had these feelings, say, see, you don't get it. You don't get us. You're not listening to us. That is not what we are. Um, and so it, it, it created more energy to go toward him. And then the final example I'll give you of the really recent one is the Me Too movement. So the Me Too movement, I read recently, and I don't, I don't know if this is exactly true. I'd have to go look it up again, but I read it in a paper this week. I think it started 10 years ago, and yet it didn't take off. And this is what's so interesting and important for leaders to understand in today's environment is that in the past, you used to be able to come in and control more so. Now, you couldn't always do it, but you could do it more so. But now what's happening is, with the Me Too movement, this thing that people have been trying to drive for a long time, all of a sudden, very quickly takes off. And so you then look at it and you say, oh my gosh, every day, another person is in the news falling based on this. And how is it that it happened that so quickly this movement has energy? And that happened because it was a combination or comp compilation of events. It was rich interconnectivity where the right things lined up, they collapsed together, and they created something that wasn't there before. So I don't know if, that may, if you get that, but if you have more questions on that, I'm happy to answer. No, no, no. I think that that's great, and I think that there's a sort of a, a natural pivot from there into the part, of the part of the argument for the application of complexity leadership is that greater interconnectivity and reduction distribution of power from information flows are allowing people to link up and drive change in unprecedented ways. Um, and when I, when I was uh, reading through that, uh, preparing for our conversation, I um, was just sort of curious about your thoughts. Would you say that the current conditions fueling the need for adaptation are unprecedented? Or is this, um, you know, is what we're, what we're currently experiencing, you know, is it cyclical and this is sort of a reemergence of a phenomenon that's happened before? So complexity has always been there. There's no question. And I think that there have been times when the world has been in more complexity than other times. So we've had, we, we've always known we've had more dynamism and stability and cycles of that. What's different about what's happening now is interconnectivity. So as I said, the key to complexity is things are interconnected. And what we see today is an unprecedented level of interconnectivity. We have never seen countries so intertwined as they are now. So if we were to talk about the U.S. and China going to war, can you even imagine? I mean, how would, how would that even work? What would that look like? Because these two economies are so intertwined that it's very mm -hmm. difficult to imagine the possibility. And we see also that the ability of individuals to influence things is what's driving this. So we started the complexity work, and I started it in 2001. My colleague, Russ Marion, started it in the 1990s when he, he wrote his book. And he spent the decade of the 90s looking at this, and he knew that this was going to be something that was going to be important. So in 2001, we could see that complexity was going to take off. In 2010, Harvard Business Review finally started to get it. And this, or, uh, for the first thing that happened was IBM did their biannual CEO report, 
And in that report, they identify complexity as the number one issue. And that happened because we had the financial crisis, the GSC, in 2008. So IBM started to get it. In 2011, Harvard Business School tried to write some things on complexity. But if you look at it, it's pretty rudimentary because, as I said, this topic is pretty hard for people to understand, and they don't know what to do with it. So we were watching it. it tip, I, what I, the way I describe it is it tipped in 2010 or 2011 when things were very different. But now I think what happened around 2014 is the time that I put on it. It was like the foundation crumbled. It was like quicksand. So not only was it tipped, it starts sneaking down in to where we are fundamentally different now. And there was an exponential shift around that time. And I think that's because social media had taken off to such an extent that there was no going back with it, and individual people and groups are empowered. And this is why we see so much happening right now in terms of divisions and so many voices speaking up that are having difficulty connecting across because lots of people have opportunities to have say, and individuals can drive complexity in ways that they haven't before. So I do think that this is fundamentally different. I don't think it's cyclical, and I don't think it's going to go away. Mm. Okay. Um, so uh, something that I think is really uh, compelling for, for folks who generally listen to this uh, is that complexity leadership argues for loosening order in favor of engaging networks and emergence. And as you know, higher education institutions are incredibly ordered, hierarchical places. And so what are some practical ways in which you'd recommend applying complexity leadership within higher education or other you know, highly ordered bureaucratic entities? This is a really tough question. <laughs> um, it's actually somewhat depressing for me personally if we think about it because higher ed is supposed to be the bastion of learning and the bastion of innovation and novel thinking. Um, let me ask you, Miles, do you think it is? Um, the bastion of novelty and innovation? I would say that it sort of depends on uh, – I think that higher education is probably too established to be like the preeminent force of that. I think that it is too ordered. Um, uh, but I think that there's still a lot of innovation that happens. There's a lot of new ideas that come from college campuses. There are probably – you know, it depends on, you know, it depends on sort of what you value. I think that some places – I think that starting from starting from scratch, like a lot of places in, say, Silicon Valley have been able to do, um, probably allows for uh, a little bit more uh, a little bit more innovation. But with that, you may see some trade-offs. And say, um, you know, there's been a lot of uh, discussions about sexism in Silicon Valley, so there may be some trade-offs for you know in in the idea of uh, you know in equity. Um, and, you know, in service of that. So um, I think that there's still a lot that happens. Higher education is probably not the bastion of innovation um, in the country. I think we put out some innovative ideas, no question about that, because our jobs are to do R&D, essentially. But as institutions themselves, it really, if you look at it, we're not very novel. We have not changed very much. If we look at our, our structures of higher ed, the way that we set up our colleges, um, the way that we have governance systems, we're really not very flexible or adaptive. And if you think about it, just look at how hard it is to get anything done that's interdisciplinary, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think that's mm -hmm. an easy challenge in higher ed. Do you? No, no, I don't think so. And I don't think that people are, 
I don't think that people are really rewarded for that for that kind of work, whether it's on the faculty, staff, or student side of things. So, um, yeah, exactly. no, I agree. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, so it's very hard. And so then you have to say, okay, why is that? Why is it that higher ed is this way? And I go out and work with lots of different organizations and industries and ask, get asked these questions all the time. So to understand the adaptability and adaptive process, you have to recognize that Adaptability in a system comes when there are pressures from outside. So mm -hmm. the pressures drive them, and they drive them to the extent that they fear for their survival. So complexity comes, a lot of the, the complexity work we use comes from biology, um, things like ants and bees, when literally if they don't adapt, they're going to die. So the organizations that we see that are most adaptive are the ones that are in environments that pressure them for death. Um, so that's high-tech um, industries that are changing quite rapidly. The ones that ha struggle to adapt and continue to maintain the, I'd say, over, overly ordered bureaucratic systems are things like government or the military. Now, in the military, people will die, but the organization or system itself, like the government, is not necessarily going to die. And I would put higher ed in that group. I think we have not had serious threats of death. Now, it was interesting because I watched this stuff. Um, if you remember the MOOC, do you remember the MOOC movement? I do, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the MOOCs were the massive open online courses. And I was doing a talk in Florida that year, and everybody was talking about MOOCs, and I was really curious to see what this was going to do. And so I went to the Internet, and I pulled up some images of MOOCs. They were they were really funny. If, I, if we were doing this video, I could actually show you some of the pictures. But it was like the big monster coming to get us, um, you know, these pictures of just absolute fear from people in universities about how MOOCs were going to kill essentially the university or higher ed system. And of course, that didn't last. So if you go in now and look for them, you can't find those pictures. Luckily, I kept mm. them um, because the threat went away. So we're really good at getting rid of the threat. We have enough stability that it hasn't really pressured us to change. So for us to be able to do it, we're going to have to either have real threats or we're going to have to have some tremendous leaders who are able to change the institution um, in the midst of the resistance. Okay, so then what does that change look like? That change means that we need to create what we call adaptive space. And adaptive space is room for a change in a system. And really what it means is that you have more interconnectivity. So that's the concept of the networks that you saw in the, the works that I sent you. Um, mm -hmm. The idea that organizations have structures, that we still need the, the stability and the efficiency, what we call the operational system, which focuses on production and results. We still need that. So the org chart will still be there, but we're, and that's the formal organization. But what we need is more informal connections and, and more networked connections and more flexibility and adaptability around how we do our work. So I, I believe there's some universities that are start trying to do that. I have a colleague at ASU who talks about the president there who's driven a lot of change. And if you go look at ASU, I think you see it. And it's been controversial. I think some people really hate him. <laughs> I think they have, he's done a lot of, of things that make them not so happy. But that's probably pretty typical when you're trying to change a system in this way.
and I'm, I'm not making mm-hmm. a judgment on how well they've done or whether they really are that, but I, I believe that that's one where he has been trying to drive the, the university to get it more in line with the current environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think, I, you know, to use the examples that you mentioned there, higher education, government, the military, I think that there's, um, you know, I think that that, I think that that interconnectivity feeds back into that and to sort of harken back to your, you know, to your hypothetical United States, uh, uh, China war piece, you know, that sort of interdependence is, um, you know, change at a, you know, at a place, whether it be the military, the government or higher education institutions, you know, change can really ripple in these really, uh, in these really uh, unexpected ways, and I think it. I, I think that that is an inhibitor to innovation. You know, like if that is the goal, if innovation and adaptivity are the goal, I think that the actual sort of human capital questions, for instance, are really um, are really um, challenging uh, in that sort of situation. Again, because you don't get to you don't you don't get to start from scratch. Um, you're not starting from a you know like a group that's working out of like one uh, you know one. Uh, apartment and you know everybody's coding and then they're just like adding a few people in very strategically you know it's a and that's a challenge for and that's a real challenge for leaders of of large entities as well and I think you could see it in private sector whether it be like uh, you know uh, this is like a thing that drives people crazy about like their cable provider or their electricity provider or you know they these like very large entities have a hard time changing and adapting as well which I think is you know really uh, you know, born out in your work. So. Yeah, and I think that what you're describing is that we have complex systems. So our organizations are already complex. Um, the question is, are they complex systems or complex adaptive systems? And what we find is that these large organizations that are complex systems are really good at pulling back to equilibrium. So I think too many people simplify this by saying, well, it's resistance of uh, resistance to change by individuals within the system. And I don't think that it's that simple. <laughs> I think it's the nature of the system and the structure itself that pulls back mm-hmm. to equilibrium. And so mm-hmm. back to your question about um, universities, you know, I've seen this recently in the last, I would say, six months where I had a couple of examples I was thinking about. We as faculty are used to operating using a government, a governance system, so faculty governance. And that system worked for us pretty well uh, for quite a while, I would say. But I started noticing more recently that people are still trying to use that governance system and do things through committee. So they'll take, let's say, a new course, and they'll say, okay, I'm going to send this to this committee. The committee will process it, and then we'll go for faculty vote. I don't know if you've been through this, but even those things now are incredibly difficult to get done It doesn't work that way. So you can't drive a curriculum change or a course change necessarily. And this is just an incremental bureaucratic change. If it's anything that affects anybody else or um, taps into, into their expertise or domain, it's very, very difficult to do that through committee. What you have to do is you have to go and work it through the system. So you have to go talk to the individuals involved. You have to start coalition building. You've got to get people on board with you and really drives that change from inside. And quite often, you can't do it in big pieces. You've got to do it in little pieces and then link those up. So the most effective administrator I've seen do this with our grad program was 
would put little things in, and people weren't even really quite understanding what was happening, and pretty soon those little things built up. But he did all the legwork behind the scenes to go talk to the individuals so that by the time it came to the faculty vote in the, in the uh, meetings, people were already on board. So I think that's mm-hmm. a simple example of, on the most basic level, how our systems are not working, and we need very different kind of leadership. But most people are trained in that old model of use the committee structure and we're administrators and more bureaucrats and they're not understanding the other kind of leadership, what we would call the entrepreneurial or the enabling leadership that's required to get change into the system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, something that I was really struck by in, in thinking about co- complexity leadership is how um, uh, I think it I think it aligns very well with uh, the with a concept that has been very prevalent in leadership literature for the last, uh, you know, 15 years or so, which is this idea of leadership as a process. So I wonder uh, about your thoughts on how complex, complexity of leadership interacts with the notion of leadership as a process. Yeah, I had to think about that quite a lot because when I started this work in the early 2000s, it really was raising a lot of questions about what leadership is. And the big challenge is mm-hmm. when you take leadership out of the hierarchical structure, and say that it's not a position, so it's not a manager subordinate, then what is it? And Mm -hmm. there were a lot of people trying to do this, so we moved to distributed leadership, which I think was the big one in higher ed. Did you hear much about distributed leadership at the time? Uh, Well, I wasn't in higher ed at the time, so I I, perhaps. (laughs) I'm dating myself, aren't I? (laughs) Okay, so so in higher ed, I, I know that Peter Gron and some others were doing, we're calling it distributed leadership. And then in the business side, we had, in the management side, we had more people calling it shared leadership. And then the question became, well, what is it? And there were some people who were saying, well, everyone is a leader and there are no followers, and this is starting to raise um, ontological questions and really deep theoretical questions about what is our construct. And so as we were doing that and we were driving toward ideas of distributed or shared or relational the question that we were getting was, well, isn't that just collaboration or isn't that teamwork? And I remember one time I was presenting these ideas as we were in the early stage and my colleague who does teamwork said, well, that's what we do. Essentially, go back into your sandbox because you're now coming into ours. This is teamwork and how is this any different from it? So that mm-hmm. created lots of challenges and we had to go deep. So. Um, Boaz Shamir, who, is, uh, who was a tremendous leadership scholar, really helped in thinking through this. And we had lots of, of intellectual debate and dialogue and, and engagement around this. And what he said was that at the core of leadership has to be an asymmetrical influence relationship. So it has to be something where one person is influencing more than another in that process. And so if you take that and you think about it, well, what it means is that one person's influencing, but it also means that someone else is willing to be influenced, which means they're willing to act as a follower. So this really got us into the idea of triggering um, more work on followership. And if you think about that, then that gets us into the idea of leadership being a co-creation. So it's a co-creation between someone who's leading and someone who's following. And the easy way to think about that is use the ING form of the word instead of the ER. And leadership occurs when you have leading linking up with following. Does that make sense to you? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
Okay, so um, with that, you start to get the leadership process of leading and following, and that's how this social phenomenon of leadership gets created. And at its core, that's what the phenomenon is. It's the combination of co-creation of leadership through leading and following. And one thing that I do to try to get people to, to really mess with them a little bit is say, you know, we love leaders, but if you think about it, it's in following that leadership is created. It's in following. Because people can try to lead all they want, and they can make all kinds of influence attempts, but leadership doesn't get created until someone else is willing to follow that person. And there's a great TED Talk by Derek Sivers that I've used to, to illustrate this. It's a really short couple-minute one called The First Follower. He talks about the first follower. So that's the idea. But then I, I would just add one more piece to this, which is in the leadership process, I think that the piece that we need to really consider is the context and that it's, these, um, it's a social phenomenon, but it's occurring in a context. And that's the piece that complexity really adds, is that it, it, at its core, it's a contextual theory. And you can't understand things unless you look at how these interactions are occurring in the context around. And that, again, again goes to the Me Too movement. There are certain contextual things happening right now that are allowing this Me Too movement to take off at this current time in a way that it didn't before. So you have to look at process as including these relational interactions of leading and following, but also the context. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, I think, uh, think that's a good, good note for us to wrap up on. So thanks everyone for joining us for the NASA Leadership Podcast presented by the NASA Student Leadership Program College Community. And thanks to Dr. Mary Yulbein, an incredible educator and resource in the leadership field. You can get more information about RKC on, the very, on our various social media outlets, including facebook.com backslash SALead, on Twitter at NASA SLPKC, and on Instagram at NASA underscore SLPKC. And you can also connect with me on Twitter. I'm at, at Miles, which is M-Y-L-A-S underscore Surrett, which is S-U-R-R-E-T-T. And finally, if you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, we'd love to hear about your program. So please shoot an email over to NASA Leader Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks again, Mary. Thanks so much, Miles.